This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by both of the authors of this fascinating new book from Bloomsbury, just out, titled The Colonial World, A History of European Empires, 1780s to the Present, which is authoritative. It is certainly an in-depth overview of European imperialism across a number of different European empires, a number of different European colonies uh, around the world over time looking at it thematically, looking at it chronologically, to understand um, what is actually happening in these empires, what is consistent through time, what is changing over time. Um, and so I'm very pleased to welcome both Robert Aldrich and Andrea Stuckey to the podcast to tell us all about their fascinating book. Thank you both for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you indeed. Before we dive into the many things covered in the book, I was wondering if you could each introduce yourselves a bit to our audience and explain why you decided to write this book and write it together. So, Robert, if I can turn to you first, please. Yes, I'm Robert Aldrich. I'm Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Sydney in Australia. So I'm retired now, but for almost 40 years, I taught European history and colonial history in Sydney, working particularly on the French Empire, but also on the British Empire. And I am Andreas Stucki, and I'm a historian and currently a researcher at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Uh, I explored the history of empire in general and the Portuguese and Spanish-speaking worlds and its connections in particular. I covered the Iberian world roughly from the early 19th to the late 20th century. And my research spans from Cuba to the Philippines and from Angola to Western Sahara. I am not very good with labels, but I'm interested in the lived experiences and in gender relations in colonial situations. I've also worked a bit on the history and theory of violence, mostly with regard to the colonial world. And now why we wrote this book. Um, I was approached some years ago by Bloomsbury, um, 
the publisher invited me to write such a book, I at first said no because I had other projects and also it seemed a formidable task to cover centuries and continents. Um, Bloomsbury was persistent and came back to me and the second time, um, several years after the first initiative, I did say yes. Um, I then met Andreas, who was a postdoctoral fellow in my department in Sydney for a couple of years, and I was very interested in his research. I also realized that our interests complemented each other. I've worked primarily on the British and the French empires. As you've just heard, he's worked on the Spanish and Portuguese empires. My focus was on Asia and the Pacific. His on the Caribbean and Sub-Saharan and Northern Africa. Um, he was particularly interested in the uh, last period of colonialism, including the post-World War II period, and, and I was perhaps uh, more uh, in, interested in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, between us, we had access to sources in about six different languages, and that helped matters too. And um, we also became friends and had hoped to work on the book together uh, in a very real way, but COVID prohibited that. So we worked on it um, in tandem by internet. Um, we thought that we wanted to write a book that would be of interest, of course, to readers, but would also try to present some new perspectives on colonial history. So we decided to have a book that was divided into three parts. Um, Caesar, of course, said that Gaul was divided into three parts and he conquered it. So maybe we rather pretentiously hoped that we could divide colonial history into three parts and make a stab at conquering it. Um, so the first part is chronological, providing an overview of European expansion and reactions to it since the late 1700s. The second part of the book chooses a number of themes, such as colonialism in the body, colonialism and the mind, in which we look at different empires over time. And the third part of the book uh, is a series of snapshots of particular colonies anchored around one year. Uh, we do go before and beyond that year, but essentially to allow readers uh, to zoom in uh, to see what colonial situations were like in certain circumstances. And we hope that that thus would provide, as it were, three different perspectives on colonialism and the colonial world. And we chose that title because we were interested in both the places that were colonizing and the places that were colonized. And thus, we were interested in trying to bring together these two fields, which contemporary colonial history tries to do, at looking at the effects on, in this case, Europe and the countries colonized by Europe and seeing some of the uh, exchanges, some of the interactions, some of the conflicts bet between the both. So that was that was how we decided to write the book, and and so we did. Um, sometimes we wrote 
a chapter uh, more or less by ourselves. And in other cases, we uh, collaborated more intensely in a chapter, but we always sent them back and forth and made suggestions and criticisms and brought new sources to the chapters and um, sometimes compromised a bit on, on one or another interpretation. But we, we hope the book, um, instead of providing a ready-made interpretation um, from start to finish, actually provides to readers raw materials for them to draw their own conclusions and and bring their own specialized knowledge and and in some ways their own experiences because so many of us live in countries that have been colonized that's the case of me here in australia of course but there were also colonizing countries and and that too is is the case of australia in the south pacific so what we hope to have achieved is a is a very set of perspectives for both us as authors and for you as readers. Yeah, and per, uh, perhaps I can jump in here uh, and tell a little bit about my experience. And I think first I would like to give credit to Robert and Robert's work. For me, uh, working with one of the best scholars in the field was a unique opportunity. And uh, when I was in Sydney, I was already familiar with his work on The Last Colonies, a book he wrote together with John Connell. And uh, I myself was working on my book manuscript for uh, violence and gender in Africa's Iberian colonies. And I think this uh, complementary uh, work that that, uh, that Robert mentions mentioned uh, really brought us together. And I think um, we are both interested as well in going beyond uh, a bit the British and the French Empire that so so long or for so, so such a long time have uh, a little bit dominated uh, the field. And uh, the book for me, I, I think, is or was uh, really a, a unique opportunity to show that also small empires in the 19, 19th and 20th century, that also small places can tell big stories about the lived experience in the colonial world. Well, those answers give us a fabulous understanding of just how big a task this book takes on and manages to cover. So thank you both for giving us that foundation and introduction to the book. Before we dive into some of those, well, those three parts, Robert, that you told us about and some of those themes in particular, um, I'm wondering if we can maybe talk a little bit more about kind of some of the decisions that had to be made to take on this task. And obviously, Andreas, you've just mentioned kind of the benefits of going beyond the French and the British empires. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about the time period that the book covers and kind of where and when in certain places you chose to focus um, and help us understand a bit behind the scenes. How did you make those obviously very difficult decisions? Perhaps, Robert, you could start us off. Yes, thank you for that question. Um, colonialism is, of course, one of the biggest themes in world history, and uh, it begins in the ancient world with uh, the, the Greek and Roman colonies around the Mediterranean, perhaps even earlier. Uh, colonialism is also a phenomenon in Asia, in Africa, and elsewhere, because there were a number of colonial empires. Um, so we take a subset of them. We look at European empires. We look at European overseas empires. 
that was another decision. So we don't talk about contiguous empires such as the the Tsarist or the the Soviet or now the, the post-Soviet Russian Empire. And we decided to begin in the mid 1700s. So this is really in in media race because empires had already been established in in Africa, in the Americas, in Asia. Um, But we wanted to to look at the situation in the colonial world at the time of the Enlightenment, at the time when there was a certain turn eastwards, and then come right down to the present. So look at the high period of colonialism, as it were, but also at the end of empire and at the legacy of empire, Um, the way that decolonization was not just the lowering of one flag and the raising of another flag, but was a transition period to a new sort of society, a new sort of political structure in most countries that was still very much imprinted with the legacy of the colonial period and and thus look at the theme of colonialism as a dynamic subject, one that changes considerably from the early modern period to the late modern period and indeed one that changes very much from decade to decade and and thus to see colonialism or colonial history not as something that is easily defined or static, but something that is complex, that is changing, that has various forms in different places, and um, that is thus not only more complex, but more fascinating. And and that meant that we did have to take a global perspective. So we, we chose to write in some senses about areas on which we have some background and interest. For example, in my case, about places like Vietnam and the South Pacific and and Sri Lanka. And we also had to write about some places with which we were less familiar and maybe became instant experts by needs because we, we did want to cover, as Andreas said, not just the British and the French empires, but to look also at the German, the Italian, the Dutch, and and even in passing the Danish overseas empires, uh, which gives us a much wider comparative set and and allows us in one way to see uh, colonialism as a transnational phenomenon, one with with many variants in, in Europe and outside of Europe, but uh, something that was uh, a, a shared mission, as, as colonialists would have called it, um, a shared adventure, others would have said, uh, a, a shared uh, set of invasions and aggressions, others would, would say uh, legitimately, and, and thus both to point out some of the similarities and some of the differences between these various cases Uh, between European countries or among European countries, but also among the places that were colonized because the the colonization, uh, for example, of a settler society such as Australia or New Zealand was very different from 
colonialism in uh, a place like India or Cuba or uh, many of the other uh, places around the world. Um, so again, pointing to some of the the varieties of colonialism and, and some of the permutations of a phenomenon across time and space. Yes, somehow I think uh, we've tried to do the impossible, uh, providing a more or less balanced picture of the colonial world, both regarding geography and time periods. Maybe I can get a little bit more, a little bit deeper and a little bit more personal <laughs> uh, regarding our decisions and the background, why we decided for some chapters and not for others. Um, I really think uh, subjective preferences uh, and our work that we have done before played an important part there as well. Just to give you one example, uh, through family ties, I'm closely connected to Peru. And so it was for me very fun to dig deeper into the history of the Spanish Andes since the 1780s, something I've never done before. And uh, yeah, I, I think... Uh, uh, such personal decisions uh, play the role as well. And um, like Robert already said, uh, our previous work might explain why we have chapters on the South Pacific, on Ceylon, or as I say, on Cuba and, the Por and Portuguese Africa. Yeah. I think I'll leave it at this. <laughs> Well, you both very much delivered on my request for behind-the-scenes insight into the book. So thank you for that. Um, I'd love to kind of think about, given this massive scope that you aimed for and very much from these uh, answers have shown kind of how you managed it, what sort of patterns might we be able to understand looking at this over time and over space um, in understanding where colonials colonial powers decided to expand and when they chose to do those expansions, right? There's obviously the risk of looking back now and going, oh, well, maybe this was inevitable, etc. And of course, as historians, we know that's not in fact the case. So from the research undertaken um, in all these different places, can you tell us maybe about the patterns you found in this decision making? Um, and if you don't mind, I'll go to Andreas first. Yeah, sure. I can give it a try. It's a tricky question. Um, and Maybe my answer is not very satisfactory, but I would argue that there were really no blueprints for, for empire building. Uh, looking back at, at the process of writing our book, I think for me it really became clear that the process of empire building was often haphazard and that it is mostly in retrospect that uh, the scattered territories were presented as a coherent entity or if you prefer as a colonial empire. And I think in part, this may be explained by the fact that empire builders have long been able to write their own history. And this has often been a history uh, of glorious strategic foresight and of exceptionalism. And hence, I don't really think that there are general patterns or that there is some kind of a big theory that would explain the rise and eclipse of empires throughout the century. But if I had to highlight one general feature of colonial powers, I would go to the same place where uh, Robert has been just a, a couple of minutes ago. And I guess I will pick the flexibility and the ability of adaption of empire over time. And it's really this feature that is most intriguing to me. This kind of shape-shifting abilities, uh, 
that make empire one of the long-lasting forms of social organization in early modern and modern history. I think we often tend to forget that empires and the modern nation state coexisted well into the 1970s. And well, in the book, I think we've tried to pay close attention also to the general dynamics in the colonies, most importantly, the delicate alliances between Europeans and indigenous people. And these unequal relationships were often decisive when it came to expansion or contractions and not so much the masterminds of empire uh, sitting in Europe that we often tend to imagine. Robert, do you want to take it from here? Yes, I I very much agree with what you've said. Um, There was no blueprint. And I might just add that uh, the whole process was not remote controlled from Paris or London or another imperial capital. Uh, Much was decided on the ground. Uh, much was continue, um, contingent, rather, and much was, was opportunistic in terms of acquisitions and movements. Um, that being said, it's, it's worthwhile remembering that the conquest of overseas empires was a maritime movement uh, for almost all the history of colonialism, and therefore there was a great necessity to find ports to uh, find ways of linking one colony to another in terms of uh, provisions of of food and water um, and later uh, the stockpiling of of coal for um, steamships and simply from getting from place A to place B uh, across the Indian Ocean, across the Atlantic Ocean, across the Pacific Ocean, Something else that occurred to me as well is that um, European powers wanted to safeguard the borders of their new colonies and even move out from the marches of those colonies one step beyond. So, uh, for instance, the British in India moved into Burma or Myanmar uh, because that was a way of protecting the eastern part of their Indian empire. Similarly, they engaged in the great game with Russia because they felt they needed to protect the northern part of their empire in the Himalaya. And I think we could see similar uh, strategies around the world in in moving from uh, coast to hinterlands, in moving uh, towards an area that was contested by a rival power and also in uh, trying to link together uh, colonies. The the famous, although uh, only briefly achieved, British aim of of linking its East African colonies from Cairo to Cape Town or the unrealized French dream of uh, linking French colonies on the west coast of Africa with Djibouti on the Horn of Africa. Um, So there is a lot of map making and attempts to make blueprints, although they often don't work out. And uh, much is is rather random. There's also a, a kind of preventive colonialism. By the end of the 19th century, European powers were taking over even isolated islands and areas that seem to have no 
particular economic or geostrategic promise simply in order to make sure that their rivals did not get there first. So the entire world is is taken over, even places like uh, sub-Antarctic islands, for instance, and polar regions in this great uh, global scramble. But I would just finish also by emphasizing a point that Andreas made, that a lot also depended on what was happening in the overseas countries. And there again, there's a question of opportunity. When Europeans saw a weak point uh, of which they could take advantage, uh, a regime that was losing power, uh, a country in which there was a civil war or a quarrel about um, territory, or if there were possibilities of taking advantage of the weakening of an earlier imperial rival, that's when they pounced and and made a move. So in a place like Ceylon or Sri Lanka, the Portuguese were there, but they were displaced by the Dutch. And then um, during the late 18th century and in the Napoleonic Wars, the British came in. Um, So the European colonial powers were warring against each other and they were taking advantage of particular situations in the colonies to strike. Um, The blueprint thus becomes rather rather messy and uh, rather uh, complex because of decisions that are being taken uh, in the center, on the periphery, um, advances and retreats, and competition uh, among indigenous polities and among the European polities. I love the idea of patterns and messiness. I think that's very true of so many things um, in history and politics. So thank you both for taking us through sort of what patterns we can see and also why it is so messy. I'd love to sort of zoom in a little bit to one of the periods covered in the book, specifically between the 1780s and the 1820s, that sort of roughly 40-year period. Um, In the book, you term this as, quote, watershed in the history of empire globally. Why is this period so crucial? Robert, do you want to start off? Well, I think many people will be familiar with... uh the late Sir Christopher Bailey's idea of an imperial meridian in this period, um, the revolutionary age. Um, The age of revolution was also an age of imperial metamorphosis, um, especially if you think in terms of the Atlantic revolution. Um, Some people don't really uh, like that phrase, but we know that 13 British colonies in North America declared independence. Britain and France went to war, um, and also uh, the colony of Saint-Domingue, the French colony, declared its independence as Haiti. Um, well, with those changes, there were also changes in South Asia as the British and the French battled for position on the subcontinent. And uh, thus we can see the wars of the French Revolution and the wars of uh, the Napoleonic era in many ways as world wars, but also as colonial wars. 
And the upshot of all of that was a, a distinct turn to the east in the case of Britain with the acquisition of New South Wales in 1788 and then expansion uh, over the rest of the Australian continent, but also with moves into places even uh, earlier, such as Penang in, in what is now Malaysia, a bit later in, in Singapore and elsewhere in the Malay states. Um, and uh, then into the South Pacific, into New Zealand in 1840. Um, the French, having uh, lost the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, was uh, deprived of many of its colonies, and uh, France was a much reduced imperial power uh, in 1815. So its task um or at least the task of the colonialists, would be to rebuild an empire. So in, in that period from the 1780s to the 1820s, we see gains and losses for the British. We see a move, on, shall we say, a new focus to um, Asia. We see the independence not only of the 13 American colonies, but of uh, almost all of the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in uh, the Americas in the early decades uh, of the um, 19th century, although for Brazil and several others, independence came later. But we also see uh, France beginning to, uh, awaiting, uh, I should say, to, to reconstruct its empire, which began in Algeria in 1830. And meanwhile, we see countries like Spain and Portugal being somewhat eclipsed in their colonial um, portfolio, um, to mix metaphors, um, because they were not able to expand in the way that, that Britain was or that France soon would be. So, so I think that period is very important. But there's one other thing to, to add, and that's um, something that comes out of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, the new ideas that begin to circulate. Those ideas were used to buttress empire in many ways in the first instance. But those ideas later were um, used to subvert empire. Ideas about liberty, equality, and fraternity. Ideas about parliamentarianism and suffrage. Even ideas about republicanism. Uh, ideas about natural rights. Um, were later mobilized with, with great adroitness by a number of nationalist and pro-independence movements around the world. So in many ways, this period shows the strength and the weaknesses of colonialism. This period of the, the revolutionary age shows the ideology that mandated expansion, but also it shows the emergence of ideologies that would be used to deconstruct empire. And, and thus we come back to many of the, the uh, debates that took place in this period, for example, on slavery and uh, whether uh, slavery could be uh, morally as well as legally uh, pursued or, or whether it was in fact a contradiction to the principles that were espoused by the American revolutionaries and the French revolutionaries and, and the radicals in Britain. And, and so this 
period, I think, was a watershed, but it was also a crucible in which these various ideas and strategies were being uh, smashed around and combined and, and distilled, or, or whatever word seems to be appropriate. Uh, maybe all of those words were appropriate because it was, there was an enormous amount of debate and an enormous amount of violence, and there was really no consensus at this period in colonial politics, just as there was no consensus in European politics. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would really agree as well no, that the 1780s to the 1820s are kind of a, a crucial period. But probably just let me add a, a couple of words to put this thesis in a broader context as well with regard to, to our book. First, uh, there is this kind of uh, German historiographical uh, tradition contending that at least in Europe, these decades from the mid-1700s roughly to the 1850s are key for our understanding of the modern world. It was uh, Reinhard Koselleck and others that referred to this period as Sattelzeit. And as decisive as this period may be, uh, I would argue that with regard to our book, uh, we uh, uncovered uh, that there are several watersheds, so to speak, in the colonial world. And let me just highlight uh, the chapter on global conflict around 1900. There, we argued that also the late 19th and the early 20th century may be seen in a more or less similar vein as a kind of turning point. And the turn of the century included decades of rapid globalization. And this period also foreshadowed much of the characteristics of the war wars of decolonization after 1945. And if I remember correctly, we highlight connections between the Cuban wars of independence leading to US intervention in 1898. We refer to the struggles of the Filipinos and uh, the South African war and the war in China around 1900, which has been called the Boxer War or Boxer Uprising. And all these global conflicts uh, were portrayed and for, uh, reported by an interne international guild of war correspondents. And uh, they, were, they were characterized by big power politics and at the same time by novel ways of colonial warfare, including uh, large-scale forced resettlements or civilian concentration. As I already said, a characteristic of anti-colonial warfare after the Second World War. So I think we could uh, distinguish several watersheds. In fact, I'd love to ask you about one of those watersheds, um, specifically what the colonial world looked like sort of before and after World War I and how that event that we think of as being a watershed of so many different things um, impacted the colonial world as well. Um, Andreas, do you maybe want to start us off? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, there are, I think, many, many things that we could mention and I would probably focus uh, just on the experience of the people of empire fighting in Europe as one of the key elements in our understanding of the differences before and after World War I. Um, yeah, just keep in mind that more than a million soldiers from the Indian subcontinent and roughly half a million from France's African colonies served in Europe. And military life at and behind the fronts changed uh, non-European's per perceptions of the colonial relationship. 
um, fighting shoulder to shoulder with Europeans, sometimes even commanding a unit or having a romantic relationship with Europeans that would not have been tolerated in the colony, that all that changed self-perceptions and that of the other. And yeah, I think going back to the colonial normal, including subordination, racial hierarchies, that seemed impossible for many. And after the war, uh, when promises of change often proved hollow, and when it became clear that U.S. President Wilson's promises of readjusting colonial claims would not bring the change that was hoped for, all these experiences and frustrations uh, had a deep impact in the colonial world, and they led to a surge of uprisings, of anti-colonial protest and anti-colonial nationalism. This might be uh, one of the differences or changes amplified by the First World War. Yes, indeed. Um, there's also the post-war settlement, which rearranged the colonial map because um, Germany lost its colonies and uh, some of them were given to Japan or distributed to, to other countries. But I think one thing that is, is interesting from my point of view is the um, intention by some of the European colonialists after the First World War to create a new sort of colonialism. Um, the Dutch had already been talking about an ethical policy in the colonies. The French talked about the mise en valeur, the valorization or development of colonies. Um, the British talked about devolution of um, government to some of the colonized, in, including perhaps even in places like India. And this was sometimes even referred to as a humanitarian form of colonialism. Those may have been noble sentiments, but those projects all failed. Um, hierarchies remained in place. Power was not given to the colonized. The projects for commercial development had some success, but came a cropper with the depression in the economic crisis of the 1930s. The um, new ideas put forward, for example, in the Popular Front government that came to power in France in, in 1936 to try to create a new sort of imperial governance came to naught in the face of the opposition of settler elites in places like Algeria. So although there was a great celebration of colonialism, for instance, at the 1931 colonial exhibition in Paris, um, the white ants are busily at work, as it were. The, the foundations of empire are becoming undone. And to many opponents of empire, to many of the nationalists, those contradictions became much more apparent in the period after the First World War, um, just as many of those returned soldiers from places like India and the French African colonies realized that they were not being given the benefits um, that they had been led to expect with their war service. They were not being given um, 
the pensions that white soldiers got. They were not being given the suffrage. They were not finding the uh, economic benefits that they thought might issue from their war service, from their training, from uh, the fine pronouncements made by the colonial leaders. So in, in some ways, we see a surge in anti-colonialism that occurs in the post-war period and that assumes some slightly different forms from the period before the First World War uh, with new political movements, but also with the injection of Marxism, which is very important. Um, And Marxist ideas, even for some of the non-Marxists, who... Um, galvanize increased support with with ideas going all the way back to the French Revolution or or, um, political reform in Britain and now also with new ideas taken from Woodrow Wilson's uh, notions of self-determination or from uh, the Leninist notions of, of a colonial as well as a proletarian revolution. Um, So again, it's the uh, material situation that changes, but also the ideological situation, uh, the cultural situation as well, I think, that changes in the post-World War period, despite the the continued celebration of colonialism and uh, the seeming... um, belief in Europe that um, colonialism would endure. That's rather a lot of interesting changes, but still, despite that sort of within very much the realm of the colonial world, which I think is fascinating to think about kind of so many things change, and yet there's still this idea, um, I don't remember now which one of you said it, right, that states and empires are still very much coexisting in this period, despite the huge amounts of changes. Um, I am going to move us on to the another portion of the book, despite the fact that we've definitely not done justice to the entire chronological section of the book, but hopefully we've done at least a few of the main points. Um, and of course, listeners can read the whole book if they want to get into all of the fascinating details. I'd like us to move, however, to the thematic section. Um, And I know, Robert, you briefly mentioned to us earlier what some of those themes were. But I was wondering if you could tell us in a bit more detail kind of what the themes are, and especially, I mean, it's already hard enough to choose geographic range and time range, but how did you choose which themes to look at? Uh, With with great agonizing and and debate and (laughs) soul-searching. As... as many will know there are differing views about the uh, impact of colonialism, both in Europe and and outside Europe, of what we might see as a minimalist and a maximalist view. Some people argue that many people in Europe and and even a a number of, of subalterns in the colonized world were not quite so directly touched by colonialism, whereas others see colonialism in every area of life, um, even in in the most surprising areas of life. Um, Now, this is uh, an interpretation, a a more maximalist interpretation, with which I have a great deal of sympathy. And and I'd like to acknowledge the splendid work of uh, 
John McKenzie in revealing the way that colonialism uh, permeated British national life and, and that of other countries in his recent book on a cultural history of the British Empire, but also in his earlier books on colonial exhibitions and museums and so many other aspects of colonialism. So the, the choice was, was absolutely infinite for us in this section. And we decided that we would try a few representative themes um, one that we began with was the environment that certainly taken on much more importance in colonial history just in recent decades and, and is now indeed a central theme, the introduction of new species of flora and fauna, the extinction of old ones, the uh, issue of pollution, the issue of environmental degradation, uh, the different perspectives towards development that would have been voiced uh, at the time of colonialism and now in a post-colonial epoch. Um, we took mind, body, and soul as um, neat divisions, although maybe they aren't so much divisions. Um, how did colonialism affect the body? Things like sexuality um, and clothing. How did it affect the minds? ideas that the Europeans discovered overseas and the ideas that the indigenous people discovered uh, when they came in uh, into contact with Europeans. Um, religion and spirituality, which was always a point of great conflict, but also of great opportunity as missionaries tried to spread Christianity, but also as knowledge about Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism began to appear in Europe and began uh, to be deciphered by European scholars and, and in fact to, to attract some um, Europeans. We think of the theosophists, for instance, who were so interested in, in what they saw as the, the ideas of the East. Um, in that section also, we looked at cross destinies. And, and I think in one chapter that, that both of us particularly enjoyed writing was to take a few characters who are not well-known people from different colonies and look at how their lived experiences reveal certain aspects of colonialism. So, for example, uh, a former enslaved person in Cuba or a, uh, a colonial administrator who was Laotian in French Indochina. And um, to see how by looking at these less familiar people, they're, they're clearly not the Rhodes and the, the Leotes of the colonial world, we can see into the ideas of colonialism, but also into the, the personal experiences of individuals, not, not aggregates, but individuals. Um, we also had a chapter on settler societies, which we don't discuss so much in, in other areas of the book because they really are a case apart uh, in the British Empire uh, for reasons that, that we all know. Um, and we also had a chapter in representations of, of empire, that's art and culture. But in that chapter, we begin with three paintings that were done by non 
Europeans um, to see how, for example, um, um, a, a, an East Indian, an Indonesian artist of the mid-1800s, or a Burmese artist of the 1930s, or a Vietnamese artist of the 1970s, uh, 1950s, sorry, painted empire. And then from that, we, we look at both the European and the non-European cultural perspectives and empire, particularly in painting, but also a little bit in, in, uh, in uh, music and, and uh, even film. And in yet another chapter, we focus on, on uh, the built environment, which is another example of, of the, the cultural imprint of, of empire and the way that empire was represented um, in quite literal form uh, with buildings, uh, whether it's it's a new capital like New Delhi or a cathedral in, in Senegal or a restoration of a monument in Java or Cambodia. And, and thus, uh, this is a bit of a smorgasbord, um, but we hope that, that readers will, will see how uh, many other examples could be researched and have, of course, been researched in the past uh, to show how colonialism, in my view at least, um, percolated through society for both the colonizing and the colonized yeah, I think Robert covered a lot of ground already. What I could do is uh, probably provide you with a quick look behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, as Robert mentioned, uh, there were chapters like the environment or slavery and indentured labor that we were thinking that these themes and uh, seemed were really necessary and key for a better understanding of the colonial world. And so we had agreed... Uh, on some of those from the outset and others, such as uh, it seems to be one of our favorite chapters, <laughs> others such as uh, our approach to the lived experiences of the people of empire through that lens that Robert mentioned, the cross destinies. This one really evolved as we were writing the book. Um, it's uh, indeed one of my favorite chapters. And... <clears throat> Well, as Robert already mentioned, it's really <clears throat> impossible to showcase colonial life in its totality. And I think this selection of biographical sketches of cross destinies from different times uh, was really the best way in this chapter to convey the complexities of colonial life. And uh, yeah, uh, just to close, uh, just to give you further insights, uh, we have one section in the chapter uh, on a woman from Equatorial Guinea and her life evolved between the African colony and Spain. And after independence, she held important diplomatic positions in her country. And she saw her mission in bridging the different worlds. Among them was the African and the Western world uh, to use her own words. I uh, really agree with Robert that the as little known as such historical actors may be, their life really encapsulate what we call cross destinies. If I could add a postscript to that, it would be to tip my hat to Andreas because that chapter was really his suggestion. I was inclined to write a chapter on the colonizers 
and then several chapters on the colonized. And he said, well, why don't we look at these in the same field? And that was a splendid idea. Um, I think in part inspired by his own work on colonialism in uh, Portuguese Angola and uh, the Spanish colony of Equatorial Guinea. And that that did provide us, I think, with, with uh, a really, for us, fascinating perspective from the ground up of uh, the experiences of, of these people. And uh, that seems to be a really good trend in colonial history and maybe even post-colonial studies as well, to, to look at particular individuals and their experiences and the way that they moved between metropole and colony and indeed moved uh, among different colonies. Uh, I've been inspired, for example, by the work of my Sydney colleague, Kirsten McKenzie, who has done some interesting work on fraudsters in empire and on people who moved from South Africa to Australia and uh, issues that, that uh, span the Indian Ocean as well. And, and this to me seems a, a really good um, um, trend in research to join together colonies and to look at the, the lived experiences of the um, not so rich and not so famous in the colonial world. One way, of course, that the lived experience is um, negotiated, is influenced, is, of course, from the environment, as you've both mentioned a little bit, the transformation of the natural environment by colonizers and the creation of a new built environment by the colonizers in these places. Um, And I think those kind of two pieces are really interesting to put together and very much in a lot of ways, impact kind of what daily life was like, what the experience was like. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a few examples of this and maybe some of the legacies um, of this particular theme investigated in the book. Um, Robert, do you maybe want to start? Colonialism, of course, has many legacies, many of which are with us still today, which we know about in terms of present-day debates, uh, the Me Too movement, the issue of apologies for the misdeeds of colonialism, um, questions about the restitution of uh, artifacts taken from the uh, non-European world that are in European or American or other collections, questions about perhaps compensation for the evils of slavery. Um, questions about multiculturalism and about migration and about refugees. Um, All of these have some relationship to colonialism. That's not to say that everything in the contemporary world is directly related to colonialism, but we we know, for example, just to, to pick one of those, that colonialism opened conduits of migration that continue to be are open or sometimes closed uh, arbitrarily uh, around the world in in various directions. But colonialism has many other legacies as well. One thinks of language because English and, and as well French, Spanish and Portuguese are now spoken around the world. Well, that's because of colonialism. We think of institutions that were uh, exported parliamentary or presidential political systems, judicial systems, 
even institutions such as universities, which around the world are now largely modeled on European institutions. Although, of course, there were other institutions of teaching and learning long before the Europeans arrived in Africa or Asia. Um, we see railway systems, ports, uh, the built environment is, is in many ways a legacy of colonialism. I'm not saying that it's a good legacy, but only that it is a legacy. But there's also a legacy in Europe. Um, think of the foods that Europeans eat. Many of them uh, came from the colonial world. Uh, a European diet is hard to imagine without uh, tomatoes and chili and coffee and chocolate and tea. And yet all of them in a way were colonial booty. Um, ideas came to Europe as well with an influence on, on European thinkers and European artists, people like Picasso, of course. Um, and, and so we see this exchange as, as one of the longest lived legacies of colonialism. Now, I, I do hasten to add that this exchange was not always um, a friendly exchange. There was uh, enormous violence. Violence was ever present in the colonial order. Um, there was conflict, there was theft, there was enslavement, various other things. But um, there is nevertheless this uh, enormous um, transportation of, of goods and people and ideas around the world. Uh, and the uh, world of the, the present day is in a uh, considerable extent a product of those centuries of interaction, um, sometimes belligerent, sometimes more amicable among different societies that was that were made possible, among other things, by the very technology that underpinned colonialism, the, the technology of ships, the technology of telegraphy, the technologies of the print media, um, and many other things as well. So um, in some ways, we live in a post-colonial world in a very real sense, not because of the end of colonialism, but because we live in a world that in diverse ways, in manifold ways, has been shaped by colonialism. And, and that's true, I think, for every country in the world. Uh, is there a country or region that has escaped uh, the effects of colonialism in one way or another? I rather doubt it. Maybe I can just add uh, a, a short example uh, on the long-lasting impact, for example, of, of, of conceptions of race and racism. Uh, from the colonial period to the present day, with regard to Cuba, a society uh, has been deeply shaped by the slave economy in the 19th century, and where slavery uh, was only abolished in the 1880s. And you have this kind of illusion of the colorblind society with the revolutionary and poet uh, José Martí, already in the 1890s, and then uh, more or less 50 or 60 years later, uh, the revolution of, of Castro and the Movimiento 26 de Julio, uh, where they try to uh, 
where they tried to officially end racism by decree, it didn't work. It didn't work. Uh, structures are still in place. Cultures of racism are still there. So I think that's one of the the long-lasting impact of the colonial period as well that we can track to the present day. Thank you both for explaining that sort of conceptually um, in the big picture and with some particular examples. I think that really does give us an idea of the long living, the longest living aspects of this as part of colonial rule. Turning to another one of the themes in the book, um, these are separate chapters, but in a lot of ways, I'd like to consider them together. You look at the impact of colonialism on the mind, body and soul across these three areas. What similarities and differences did you find? Perhaps, Robert, you want to start? Um, I was afraid it would be me because that's a very good question, but also a very difficult question. Um, I think we could talk about the way that various changes were adopted and adapted. And that meant the various ways that those changes were both imposed and also accepted or accommodated, sometimes even enthusiastically, um, both in, in body and in mind and in soul. For example, um, clothing. Um, European missionaries wanted natives, as they called them, to dress modestly. Um, but then clothing in a European fashion was often adopted as a mark of social status. Um, those who succeeded in the elite in a place like Sri Lanka often um, adopted European clothing uh, as a point of pride that they were educated, they worked in certain types of jobs, they uh, were uh, adapting themselves to the colonial order. Or another example might be religion. Religion was sometimes imposed by force, by missionaries, but it also was adopted and adapted uh, with vigor by some populations. It's, it's um, clear today that some of the most Catholic populations of the world are those in Brazil and in the Philippines. And in both of those cases, Iberian missionaries uh, initially imposed Christian religious beliefs. Uh, another example is, is in the South Pacific, where almost all of the population now is Christian, Protestant or Catholic, and Christianity is much more a part of daily life, of religious practice, and of systems belief in, in the South Pacific Islands than it is in Europe, uh, from which Christianity was exported to these, to these islands. Um, so we see uh, this um, somewhat contradictory, but maybe the complementary phenomenon of European culture being imposed, but also recreated, adapted, adopted, uh, manipulated with various degrees of resistance, but occasionally also of, of acceptance and even enthusiasm by uh, the people who, who were colonized. 
and and I think you see that across mind, body, and and soul. Um, if you look at educational institutions, at medical practices, at religious beliefs, um, and again, it, this echoes back to Europe, the way that Europeans, in some ways, although to a much less extent and without the imposition, uh, because they were uh, not the colonized, were taking on board some of the ideas that came from the wider world, some of the practices that became of the wider world. Uh, again, this appears in such things as uh, popular culture and and decorations, the, the vogue for uh, Orientalism, for chinoiserie, for japonisme, um, for primitive art. Now, that's, of course, very different from the way that European cultures were, were enforced and imposed on the colonized. But nevertheless, it, it does show this um, uh, two-way street that uh, colonialism up had in, in mind, body, soul. We can see it as well in the environment. We can see it in political institutions and, and ideologies. And, and we can track it through the ways in which people, especially those who were colonized, resisted, um, fought against, rejected, but also occasionally accommodated, adapted and adopted these new patterns of, of thought, behavior and consumption. Perfect. Nothing to add from my side. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm going on to the next theme then. Um, and Andreas, I think you're probably going to be first up on this one. Um, so I wanted to ask about, we've mentioned it briefly, the development um, of counterinsurgent tactics, of the use of population resettlement, both the sort of mass ones and the ones that involve counterinsurgency related things, um, and also development, the idea of kind of aid and development and humanitarianism. Um, I was wondering, maybe, Andreas, if you could tell us a bit about how these sorts of areas you find in the book become increasingly gendered towards the later period of empire for, from the post-World War II period. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think we make this argument in the chapter on the Portuguese empire in Africa, particularly uh, regarding the colonial wars of the 1960s and 70s. And we describe these wars as uh, wars of modernization. And well, the same would be true for the French in Algeria in the 1950s and 60s, which uh, really influenced also Portuguese uh, policies. Um, but let's try to take it step by step. Uh, we could argue that colonial actors targeted women in myriad ways since the early days of colonialism. And we got the impression that in a more systematic way, we see gendered policies and programs aiming at domination and control emerging in the second half of the 20th century. There is this slogan, let's win over the women and the rest will follow. Uh, it was uh, Franz Fanon who described the late colonial mindset in these words. And well, for the late Portuguese empire and the wars in Africa, we've analyzed military manuals, guidelines, as well as local commander statements on the wars. And they all concurred that winning the heart and minds 
of women in the colonies was key for the war effort and in the end for the empire to endure. And well, women's roles in the family, educating the next generation, all this was perceived as, a deci as decisive in shaping the imperial nation. But uh, to avoid misunderstandings, despite the key role ascribed to women, such gendered views of colonial societies had little in common with uh, women's liberations or, or women's right, rights. Uh, women were still seen as kind of pawns to be strategically moved to achieve an objective, in this case, maintaining colonial rule. And this perception more and more influenced modern counterinsurgency. Modern counterinsurgency had it that pure military force would not do the job anymore in quelling uprisings in the colonies, what was later called asymmetrical warfare, an offer of development should help winning the population's hearts and minds, access to medical care, access to education, access to drinking water, and so on. It was this uh, understanding of an offer of development that the strategists argued that would help to win people over and eventually contribute to end insurgencies. And this offer of development was uh, often gendered with particular programs tar targeting women, uh, programs such as home economics, childcare, hygiene, training in dressmaking, training as hairdressers, as teachers, and so on. And in this setup, soldiers were imagined as a kind of uh, development workers in uniform, enabling the population to evolve, so to speak. To be sure, despite of the rhetoric of development and modernization, colonial wars were still extremely violent, including brute force and massacres. But uh, let's get to the point of, the, of population resettlement, forced resettlement, for example, to newly built villages, brings, I think, the different threads of the argument together. New and modern villages allowed for better control. New villages could at least in theory, provide access to the promised education and medical care. In model villages, new gender roles could be implemented and people's mindsets transformed. Populations gathered in new settlements might eventually become new consum consumers, as the argument went. And when talking about the transformative potential of new villages and resettlement schemes, planners often refer to the idea of virtually beaming people from a lifestyle that was rather a remnant of the Middle Ages to modernity. And all of this would be achieved within a couple of years. And here again, reality rarely corresponded with the planners' imagination. Overcrowding, lack of food, rapidly spreading disease and neglect by administrators turned many resettlement projects into humanitarian disasters. And well, there is a further international threat to the argument that we've tried to wave in uh, from the 1950s onward. Specialized committees and working groups of the United Nations emphasized women's contribution to development and peace, advocating for equality. And this rhetoric also resonated within the Portuguese empire 
albeit, as I already mentioned, sometimes as a means to an end. And as you may suspect, much of this story of gender development goes far beyond the colonial world and influences concepts of development to this day. But I guess I'll leave it at this for the moment. <laughs> Robert, yeah. is there anything you'd like to add? Yes, I would just like to, to uh, a bit of a reminder about the role of women in colon, colonialism and anti-colonialism in general. Uh, Andreas and I decided we wouldn't have a chapter on women in empire because that would be a, a kind of ghettoization of one gender, but that we would try to make sure that women were present throughout the book. And um, we hope that we show the way that women were um, subjects and objects of empire. I think we all know enough about uh, issues of sexuality and, and eroticization of, of non-European women, but also the role of women in as, as explorers, as writers, as campaigners against slavery, as uh, uh, promoters of settlement and, and various other things. Uh, but we also want to think about women as anti-colonial figures. And, and here I'll give one example. Um, I once wrote a book on uh, indigenous rulers who were dethroned and exiled by the British and French colonial authorities. And one of the people to whom I devote a chapter in that book was the last queen of Madagascar, a woman called Ranavalna III. Um, she was considered by some a puppet ruler under the French in the 1880s. But then in the 1890s, she, in, in a great public assembly in the capital of Madagascar, summoned her people to resist the French and, and made a clarion call of, of opposition to the French. Um, for that, she was um, ousted by the French and, and exiled to Algeria, where she spent the, the rest of her life, um, never returning to uh, Madagascar, although in the 1930s her remains were repatriated to Madagascar and she became uh, something of a symbol for some people of nationalism and anti-colonialism at a much later stage. Um, but the, the role of women thus uh, going right back to the 19th century and much further and in terms of uh, colonial and anti-colonial activities is something that is is really important, despite the the subaltern and marginalized position of women in uh, the European order and in the order of of many of the societies that were colonized. In in fact, women are often the focal point, as Andreas said, for issues of of evangelization, for issues of modernization, for issues of trying to uh, rouse support or at least acquiescence among the colonized women were considered malleable, docile. The same stereotypes used in Europe were, were transposed to the colonies and, and meant that explicitly or implicitly, women were very often the target for very special and significant types of, of colonialism. Thank you both for explaining that. Um, 
and how that fits into the broader book, I think is quite interesting and goes to this idea of sort of the themes that run throughout the chronology and the geographic scope. Um, I'd love to sort of stay for one more question on the end of empire period and almost pick up on something, Andreas, you said of kind of the legacies are still with us um, and also the idea of UN special committees uh, because there was a UN General Assembly Committee on decolonization and some people might be surprised to know that it still exists. Um, In fact, there are a number of European countries like France and Britain that continue to have what tend to now be called overseas territories. Um, some of these are Pacific islands, like New Caledonia. Um, we also, though, thinking a bit more broadly, have situations like Western Sahara um, still to this day. So to what extent can we think of some of these places, especially sort of the overseas territories and the islands, as colonies similar to the ones examined in the bulk of the book? Uh, Robert, do you maybe want to start off with that? That's a, a good question. Uh, Andreas mentioned a book that I had done with a, a geographer colleague called The Last Colonies, and we've more recently done another book called The Ends of Empire, um, which is exactly about this phenomenon. Um, you're quite uh, right in mentioning pertinently the UN Decolonization Committee, which actually had its most recent meeting just a couple of weeks ago in Bali. They have a rather eclectic list of non-decolonized places, but it is significant that that is still on the UN agenda. Um, Now, are these places like Gibraltar or French Polynesia or the Spanish enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla in North Africa still colonies? Um, Well, how long is a piece of string Um, for pro-independence and nationalist groups, they they are. From the standpoint of many of the Europeans, they are not. Uh, certainly they're not classical colonies because the uh, residents are citizens, they have the right to vote, they're elected assemblies. In most cases, they get social services provided by the metropole. And very few of the populations have manifested uh, a great desire to become independent, at least in the immediate future. There are exceptions, and one of those exceptions is the subject of our chapter on uh, the former Spanish Sahara, Western Sahara, where there is quite an active um, independence movement, and that is one of the territories that is on the UN's non-decolonized list. Uh, Andreas has done a lot of research on on that, so he might wish to add a bit more there. Um, But it is fair to say that decolonization can never be completed, because as I said earlier, it's not just a change of political regime. It is in many ways uh, far more than that. And decolonization didn't just begin with movements that campaigned for independence, but in in some ways began with the initial resistance to European colonialism. I think it's also fair to say that there are now what some would call colonies of former colonies. Um, Indeed, some active independence movements in the world don't campaign against European powers because they are out of the picture, but against the successor states to the European powers. 
for example, the movement for independence in West Papua, which is the western part of the island of New Guinea, once a Dutch colony, now a province of Indonesia. The, the population is uh, different ethnically and culturally, and there is a strong independence movement there. Uh, a few years ago, we saw a successful independence movement in East Timor against the Indonesians, although East Timor was uh, at one point uh, a Portuguese colony. We see other movements around the world, or we have seen other movements around the world um, among Tibetans, among Tamils, uh, among various other people who campaign for independence because they argue that their territories and their people are essentially being treated as colonies by central gov governments and dominant uh, ethnic groups. So colonialism metamorphoses and perhaps anti-colonialism metamorphoses as well. Um, in some ways, we look at the world today and we could see uh, a, an attempted at recolonization of Ukraine by Russia an attempt to take over territory that was once controlled, an attempt to uh, change the population structure, to impose uh, a government against the will of a population, an attempt to deny the validity of the culture of the Ukrainian people, uh, the sort of aggression that is um, not all that... Um, different in, in some ways from the um, bringing in the gunboats version of colonialism practiced by um, some of the Western European countries and indeed by Tsarist Russia uh, in the 19th century. So um, whether we use the word or not, um, and I do steer away from using the word colonies to refer to places like Gibraltar or the Dutch West Indies, um, we are talking about asymmetrical relations. We are talking about contests over territory and culture. And we are talking about um, big countries and little countries and some of the inequalities in the international system. Yes, I think a really nice overview that uh, Robert just gave and regarding Western Sahara. I would just like to encourage uh, listeners to, to read the chapter. <laughs> it's one of the last in part three, and we really try to bring in recent developments as well. Uh, as you may know, in recent years, uh, several Western powers, among them the US, recognized Morocco as the administrative power of Western Sahara. And uh, yeah, just uh, encourage listeners to go to the chapter and read some more on Western Sahara. I will say, in fact, I've been following that particular conflict um, for a good few years now, but it does come out sort of in bits and pieces and coverage and media coverage is, in fact, one of the fronts of the conflict. So I must say, Andreas, reading that chapter um, helped me put all of the pieces together um, in a more effective way, despite having followed it for many years. So I would second that recommendation. Um, and I do think, although we've definitely not covered all of the themes or the time periods in the detail that they deserve and the detail that thankfully the book does go into, 
Um, we've hopefully done some justice to the idea of a tour of the book to help people understand some of the main points and hopefully encourage people to read those details themselves, which leads me only to ask my final question um, of what you're each working on now that this book is done, um, whether or not it's a project together, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic, um, if there's anything upcoming you'd like to share with our audience. Um, Robert, do you want to go first? Well, thank you uh, very much for inviting us for this uh, interview, and uh, we hope that the listeners will uh, be interested in in the book and and read it, of course. Um, Well, I'm retired now, but I haven't turned off the computer or or laid down my pen. Over the past few years, I've been working on the history of modern monarchy, uh, in particular with a colleague at the University of Sydney called Cindy McCreary. And we've edited three books, uh, one on um, crowns and colonies, one on royals and tour, and the third monarchy and decolonization in Asia. So we're interested both in European monarchies and indigenous monarchies and non-European monarchies, and in some ways how they interacted in in diverse fashions during the colonial age. Um, So I'm continuing that research, Cindy and I, along with a historian at um, the University of Linz in Austria, whose name is Falco Schnicker, have edited a book called Global Royal Families, um, which uh, looks at at a number of cases around the world. uh, And that should be coming out uh, later this year or more likely early next year. Uh, I'm probably going to be involved as well in a new project Um, of which I'm only a very small part, a multi-volume cultural history of monarchy um, from antiquity to the the present. Um, I certainly won't cover that whole expanse of time, um, but it's an interesting uh, potential project. And and I think monarchies are interesting. We've we've just had the coronation of of King Charles and, and Queen Camilla, And of course, I was interested, among other things, to see what former British colonies were represented, as well as the uh, other realms and territories of King Charles, including Australia, and uh, what representatives there were from former British colonies. And and there were ones, the Ashanti king was there. from from West Africa, the uh, head of state and uh, king of Malaysia was there. And thus, we still see some of these connections that endure um, after the formal end of the colonial age, and and as well as the phenomenon of of monarchy itself in in 40 or 50 countries around the world, uh, including some that will colonizing countries uh, such as Spain and and the Netherlands and and Britain and and some that were colonized countries. So I guess that's the general theme on which I continue to work. Um, Not just monarchies and colonialism, but that's that's an important part of of my current uh, uh, vocation or avocation in, in retirement. And 
I'm currently working on a project uh, taking up the thread of international development. We mentioned a bit earlier, and this time I'm trying to connect late colonial ideas of development with post-independence visions for transforming particularly rural areas. Um, I'm exploring a biographical approach tracking down the global trajectories of agronomists and social anthropologists from Europe to the Americas and from Southeast Asia to Africa. I already did some archival research, but I'm not quite sure yet about the best way to, to tell this story. I have still some work to do. Some very interesting things for us to stay tuned to then from the both of you. Thank you for that. And of course, in the meantime, while you're working on these many projects, um, listeners can read the book titled The Colonial World, A History of European Empires, 1780s to the Present, published by Bloomsbury. Robert and Andreas, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you indeed. And um, we we hope that... Um, People will read the book and, and give us some comments about it and debate it and discuss it.